0: I think
2: Christians have become part of the problem. You know, we see this today. Christians disproportionately fooled by conspiracy theories. Uh, Christians disproportionately angered online. But as an evangelical who really loves God's people and loves the church, I think it's my responsibility, and I'd say your responsibility is, you know, as a person yeah. of significant platform, it's our responsibility to help Christians engage their culture well. And I don't think we are. We need to do better.
1: From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. As a professor of communication at Andrews University, I get to teach sessions on conflict. And the thing about conflict is that conflict is neither good nor bad. It's neutral. It is also normal. Having conflict with another person doesn't mean your relationship is bad. It actually just means that you are in a relationship. Well, what do we do when 84% of people say they are angrier today compared with a generation ago, according to the latest NPR poll? It feels like we are living In a constant cycle of outrage and conflict, and it's starting to feel personal. Today, we get to talk to my friend Ed Setzer, who literally wrote the book on this very topic Christians in the Age of Outrage How to Bring Our Best When the World Is At Its Worst. Ed is an American author, speaker, researcher, pastor, church planter, and Christian missiologist. He is the chair of church mission and evangelism at Wheaton College and executive director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. And he is also so wise and to talk to. All right. So I'm going to read you one of your recent tweets.
2: I feel like I'm being held accountable.
1: Okay. So we're going to read this and I just want you to to expand on your thoughts. So you say this. Conservative Christians have a degree of freedom to confront political conservatives that progressive Christians don't in challenging political progressives. As one consistently advocating for the unborn, immigrants, religious liberty, and racial justice, I've seen this truth. So what do you mean by that? Do you want to bring us into that conversation? Yeah,
2: so I was retweeting somebody else's tweet that pointed to a study that uh, progressive Christians tended to be less critical of progressive positions where conservatives tended to be often more critical of conservative positions. So it's a little counterintuitive to people who think— that evangelicals are, who tend to be more conservative, white evangelicals in particular, who are walking lockstep. And so I resonate with it because I've, what I've experienced is when I speak, I, one of the things that sort of happened, because I was critical of uh, several things about immigrants and refugees during the last administration. Um, you know, during the midterms, the morning of the midterms, Vox ran an article where I called out was just a falsity that there's this group of folks Violent people walking up through Mexico to try to, and we had to call it the National Guard. This was the midterms 2018. And, um, you know, and so, you know, people, progressive people say, yeah, Ed Stetzer is, you know, calling out the the falsehood that there's some sort of threat from a group of poor people kind of come up from the Golden Triangle in Central America through Mexico. Um, And again, people can debate levels of immigration. I'm actually, I actually think that's a very fair and legitimate debate. But pretending they're something they're not and calling them things they're not, I think was worthy of us calling out. So I did. So, but those same progressives are a little shocked when I speak at the March for Life or when I write about um, pro life issues or when I've been, uh, you know, intentionally critical. And I say intentionally on purpose, I um, say intentionally, intentionally, when I've been intentionally <laughs> critical of the Biden administration, uh, its pursuit of the Equality Act. Uh, President Biden said he wanted to be a uniter. Well, the Equality Act is an existential threat to the mission of Colorado Christian, where you work, and, and Wheaton College, where I work. Uh, it's not a uniting at all. There are ways to to acknowledge the civil rights of LGBTQ plus persons and to acknowledge the conscience rights and the religious liberty rights of Christians. So, but that tweet pointed out that people tend to, you know, in research we talk about. This is a little strange question, but if I um I know your husband's a pastor, mm-hmm. um, and you guys are involved in church. If I ask the question, does your church use a guitar in worship, I also don't have—this is strange, but stay with me—I also don't have to the, ask the question, do you project lyrics on a screen? Because almost everyone that has a guitar in worship projects mm-hmm. lyrics on a screen. It's correlated to one another. Well, the problem is, when it comes to some of these issues, because we've been far more discipled by our cable news choices mm-hmm. and our and spiritual shape our social media feed, if somebody— holds this one issue, they tend to hold a whole array of issues, and they align themselves with political parties that hold those issues, and they correlate with one another. Well, I think that's unhelpful. I think it's unhealthy. I think the scriptures teach us to be the kind of people that speak up for racial injustice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, but but you can actually watch what happens. So I was, um, after George Floyd's murder— a pastor friend of mine's name's James Meeks. He's a student. He's a grad student in our program, but but also pastors probably one of the largest black churches in Chicago. It's a ten thousand seat sanctuary. Oh so wow! It's the largest church built as a church in the United States. Wonderful brother in the Lord. He's on the he's a uh, one of the trustees at Moody Bible Institute. So very solid evangelical. So he says we're having a faith leaders march. We want you to come, uh, and it's in Bronzeville neighborhood, predominantly black neighborhood. And so I said, of course I'll come. And so I went down and he said we want you to come and we want you to hold the the sign up front. Um and so I said, you know, James and and Charlie Dates was also there. He also texted me. So I said, James and Charlie, I'm happy to come, but I think you guys should be up front. And I'll just I'll be behind you supporting. You. He said, "No, it's important we have allies up front." So what was interesting was cuz I've marched for life. I've spoken at the March for Life in Chicago and more. Uh, is that this suddenly became, well, Ed Stetzer must be this now joining pastors at a faith leaders' march in Chicago, Mm. one blogger that consistently lacks integrity, but one blogger says that (laughs) Ed Stetzer joins Antifa. You know what? So, but what happens is in people who haven't, I think, thought these things through scripturally, they may come to different conclusions than me. Right. But to just assume that joining a faith leaders' march in the summer protests means, and there's seven other things that that must mean. So even in the article I wrote about this, I said, you know, as one who's marched for life, I march for racial justice. And, and there were so many evangelical pastors there. But I think that's my point, is that sometimes, for, as I've been consistent on issues of life, on my opposition to the Equality Act, as I've been supportive of Supreme Court justices that President Trump appointed, and also critical in national publications about President Trump's language, um, it, many of his policies, and more, um, people it causes dissonance in people. Right. And the point of that article I retweeted was, it seems to cause more dissonance in progressive people who then— even though, well, Ed Stetzer wrote that article in Vox. We like the article in Vox, but now he's in Christianity Today advocating for life or having written USA Today recently defending Oral Roberts University. People can Google and find this as, uh, you know, the Oral Roberts University, people wanted to, I guess the word is cancel nowadays. And I wrote an article basically saying, let's let the religious kids play basketball. And I spoke against the Equality Act in USA Today, became their number one most read article for 36 hours. Progressive friends who heard me speak up on refugees and immigrants are like, well, Why are you saying this? Because I think the Bible teaches this is God's plan for sexuality. I get that it's unpopular. I get that I wrote in the pages of USA Today on an unpopular issue. So for me, I think ultimately, my my friend, Wilfredo de Jesus, we call him Pastor Choco, front page of Time Magazine, one of the 100 most influential people in the world that Mm. many people haven't heard of, but just a wonderful brother. He works with the Assemblies of God now in Springfield. He said... Uh we were talking about politics this is before this was in between the 2016 2020 election. He said I'm not on these teams. People say well you got to you got to support if you're going to support this person let's let's say it's president Biden or president Trump you got to be on the team you can't over criticize that person because then you undermine their ability to do things you like and he said but I'm not on a team and if this is a ball game and there's Republicans and Democrats they're the they're the teams in baseball I'm not on their team I'm the umpire. I'm calling balls and strikes and and I think that that's what we need more of as prophetic Christians. Now, let me say, your audience is a little different than some—you know, you have a broader audience of the kind of person who listens. Like, when I talk to pastors and church leaders on Stetzer Leadership Podcast, I tell them, you should not say as much as I say. Um, mm. I mean, I'm a public commentator. I'm literally paid by people to say things about what I think evangelicals think or say. I think most pastors need to love their church, but there are times— Egregious moments in our culture, Uh, January 6th, the Capitol riot, um, uh, George Floyd's murder. Um, I I think there are times when they can and should speak up. But if you only speak up on issues that conservatives like and only don't speak up or only only speak up on issues progressives like, then ultimately people are going to correlate that in their mind that you're, and, and I just think the Bible, this is why I think Christians don't fit perfectly in any party. But I, because uh, I think we need to speak up. So for me, racial justice matters. Um, for me, um, religious liberty matters. Life in the womb matters. Um, I, I, w- I would say safety in communities matters. Crime matters. Um, I would say that uh, the way we speak of immigrants and refugees, people made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect, matters. And I think we have to act and live that way, or else the world assumes we're, we're co opted by a political party. And let me just say, not or else, the world does assume that for particularly white evangelicals are co-opted mm-hmm. uh, politically. And I don't want to be, I want to speak prophetically to both parties. So that's that, that I gave, that was too long of an answer for a short No, point. it
1: wasn't. And I, I think, so we had Esau Macaulay on and he, something that he said that I thought was really profound was, and it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, how on social media, you have to be careful because the way you get your followers is the way you have to keep them. Yeah. So let's say I have a really popular tweet, and I, I've seen this happen to people online. They'll have a popular tweet of something that was angry. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden, all of their posts become these angry tirades it's, it's about like a, the same it's thing. It's like moth
2: to a flame. Yep, exactly. Right. Yeah. And
1: so I, I think that sometimes maybe that's what's happening with our political discourse.
2: Yeah. yeah, I'm affirmed as someone who's sort of known to be a prominent evangelical critic of President Trump. Um, that drew, and one of the things, I was, I was not, I mean, I was very aware of this. This is why I would end up on NPR Morning Edition at times. Um, you know, when the Roy Moore situation in Alabama came out, I was on CBS Evening News, and I totally get that. Wait a second. So this is an evangelical, a white evangelical, who's speaking differently than maybe most are. But they don't always want to hear what else I got to say.
1: Exactly. And
2: so, you yeah, know, but this is the thing I liked about USA Today. So I'm, I'm a frequent writer for USA Today. So um in September, I wrote an article for USA Today, Evangelicals Need to Deal with the Q and Honors in their midst, September. And uh, got widely hammered by the conservative world, like, oh, this is not an issue. Well, on January 6th, they kind of thought maybe, and maybe we should have listened to Ed in September. So January 10th, I wrote an article that I think their evangelicals face a reckoning after after January 6th, after President Trump. And again, I was very nuanced in that people should read that before they just jump to all the conclusions. Cause I think unlike a lot of people, I think good godly people go into a voting booth and make complex decisions. And I know good godly people love the Lord who said, this is, you know, I had to make a hard choice, I voted for President Trump. And I know good godly people who didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, people go in and they have a strategy, it's a complex strategy. Um, But I wrote that article um, where I think some evangelicals were just so far in and so fooled by some of the rhetoric that there's gonna have, it's gonna impact the witness for a long time. and then I wrote an article about Oral Roberts University and the dangers of the Equality Act and why we need to acknowledge that a significant percentage of the population does indeed believe that marriage is between one man, one woman, and one lifetime. So I appreciate the opportunity at a place like USA Today um, that will give me the opportunity to speak both directions. Right. And, but I also know that that's not true. In each place, so I've written right. written a lot for CNN. Found that they gave me the opportunity to speak to both places, but occasional uh, progressive publication won't. Uh, mm. And you know, and I, you know, I, I, rec- I recognize what's going on. I'm not fooled by this. Uh, I recognize what they're what they're doing, but I also think it's important to speak to my constituency and about my constituency to others as evangelicals.
1: What would you say about? I'm thinking of your online strategy yeah. or just how well you connect to your followers. What is that? Do you have online strategy? Do you have social media strategy?
2: Well, you know that I direct messaged you not long ago and said, I'm learning from you. That's right. About how to sort of frame some of my Happy tweets. to
1: mentor you. Yes.
2: No, I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I appreciate that. I felt that. So um, so when I was at Lifeway, Lifeway did an analysis of my Twitter followers. I, don't, I think they took a sample of them. And about 75% were pastors and church staff. So I sort of know who I'm talking to. And so I try to, um, I do have a lane, right? So people see me as research, missiology, cultural commentary, and also I'm a conservative evangelical. Oh, I use the words inerrancy to describe my view of the Bible. Um, you know, I, I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. I'm actually, we're recording this at Cherry Hills Community Church where I'm, we're both in Denver, but I'm beginning a series uh, verse by verse through the book of Philippians here. So, um, I sort of know who I am.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, I'm a conservative evangelical in a conservative evangelical denomination who cares about a lot of issues that people who care about justice care about. And so, what I want to do is two things. People say to me, Ed, you say the things that I want to say, but I feel I can't say. I hear that from all the time from pastors who's like, so they'll share my article and sometimes regret it. Um, <laughs> but you say the things I want to say, but I can't say. And the other thing, too, is I try to engage. Thoughtful evangelicals, not all of whom are gonna agree, but I try to engage thoughtful evangelicals and say to them, let's think about this um, through multiple angles. Let's make sure we think this through. So it's very easy to get driven by slogan. And Christians on Twitter get very driven by by slogan. Um, you know, so so for example, you know, the dismissing everyone else's views with what's everyone who's opposed to President Trump. Well, now You don't have any more mean tweets, but you get this. Well, you know, that's really not fair to – I'm dismissing everyone who was concerned about President Biden as well. Then you'd get Trump. Well, no. I mean, there are real concerns. President Biden's actions, Mm. and particularly as he's governed uh, much more progressively than he said he would. And Mm. then he's, you know, 40 years in public office. I mean, he's going to remap financially. Now, again, I don't think Jesus gave us words about the right marginal tax rate. So I'm not really engaged in – that much of a discussion, but or for that matter, what's the best approach to um, you know to deal with you know funding of public services? Right. Um, but certainly, he, I mean, he wants he wants to be Roosevelt. He said I. They. They. I don't know if he said, but people in the staff have said he sees this as an FDR moment. Mm. The challenge is some of that FDR moment is around issues that are really issues that Christians. Mm-hmm. Some Christians will disagree about it. I, mean, I don't even know your thoughts about high taxes or low taxes. Historically, I think low taxes tend to produce an economy that creates more jobs. I'm okay. That's not <laughs> that's not where I'm gonna, that's not where I'm putting my energy. Right. Right now with the Biden administration, I'm speaking up on issues and and just full disclosure, talking to leaders in the Biden administration about a path that we can find that doesn't this expansive view of government also needs to take into account religious liberty and and more. So those are those are it's challenging times for sure your book. We're getting way more political than I expected. And, I and I'm going to keep
1: it there for one more okay, minute. One right. more, okay? Right. So your book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, yeah. How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst is literally the perfect description of what every Christian should be trying to do online. Talk to us about that book, why you wrote it, and what are some strategies you think can help us be our best, yeah. even if it feels like the world is at its worst. Yeah,
2: so we actually, um, so a fun, little fun background on there. So um, I went to t- Tyndale, um, decided to write with Tyndale so I sat down with Tyndale's leadership and I said you know I'm kind of very open to what people people in publishing are smart and so I said to Tyndale what do you think we should write on and so this was a conversation in 2016 and they said what if you write a book on outrage
0: Mm. I said I
2: said 2016 I said I'm because you know it takes me a year to write a book." my current book with InterVarsity, I'm two to three years <laughs> behind. But anyway, just your new book is here. out. Your new InterVarsity book is out. So, and and make sure you pick up um, when it's not your turn, right? It's not your turn. It's not, not your it's turn. It's not your turn. Yes. I had it, but make sure you pick that up. Um, but so 2016, I said, just write a book on outrage. I said, well, it'll come out in 2018. And I said, I'm not sure people are still going to be outraged in 2018. And clearly <laughs> they were right. And I was wrong. So, um, so what's happened? It's just got worse, right? And people are being discipled by their cable news choices, right. spiritually shaped by their social media feed. It's becoming toxic, and Christians that I know—I mean, people who were who were Christ-like, cautious in their engagement, but but bold in their truth-telling—have just been co-opted. I mean, sometimes I want to say, you know, who. What cut a hold of you? Right. It's, it's almost like you're running. oh so well. What hindered you? The scripture writes, um, and so, so, and I, I so for me, I, I wanted to say, and there's actually a chapter on social media in the book, but it's not really about social media. But I think social media, having become we- weaponized and toxic, is a big part of the challenge we're walking in right now. But what I say to people is, um, people say, well, I just got to be frank on social media, I said, well, if your name's <laughs> not Frank, you should stop. Um, and you gotta be Christ-like. That's right. gotta be, and mission-driven. You know, when, when, when 2,000 years ago in Rome, the uh, they had hot and cold running water. People don't realize just how advanced Rome was. Rome was a city of a million people. And in the West, there wasn't another city of a million people after Rome fell until London in the 1700s. So it was this just unique, powerful, technological marvel with hot and running water. And um, But what did, people didn't realize is their hot and running water was run through a metal that was very malleable. And the reason it was malleable was called lead. So all their hot oh. and cold running water was run through lead. And some historians, probably this is not the case, said this is what led to some of the madness we saw in some of the people. Because we all know now lead is right. bad for you. And they're running their water through lead. But it gave them access. And what a technological marvel. And I believe social media – that 20 years from now, we're gonna look back at this era and say, this is like the lead pipes of the wow. Roman Empire. Because I think it's, it's literally killing some people.
1: I love that uh, metaphor. And it's,
2: it's, it's weaponizing relationships and con- and platforms in ways. So I, in Christians in the Age of Outrage, I, I lay out a better way. Probably the thing that surprised people most is because I, I have lots of. It. I, I, I got over sixty examples of people who built bridges when they could have burned them down.
0: Mm.
2: Um, and it's one of the things about being on Twitter. I said, "Hey, tell me examples." And I put it out there, and I, I had a researcher work with me. We gathered these examples. There's a whole chapter on um, spiritual disciplines because I believe that man, if people would just unplug from their cable news. Spend, and I know this is going to sound so like basic one hundred and one. This is junior high discipleship. Spend some time in the Word of God. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time fasting, and create what I call reservoirs of resilience in their own life to engage the tumult and the turbulence, uh, uh, tumult turbulence. Because I don't think, I think everyone thinks we're coming out of the pandemic, which I I hope that's the case. Not true globally, but vaccines have really helped us to advance here. Um, But I want to say to pastors and church leaders. I think we're in the midst of what David Brooks called in an article in The Atlantic, a cultural convulsion. Every 60 years, America goes through a cultural convulsion. So I want to say to most people listening, I don't think that this fall, when I think we're going to be at a remarkably better place, you know, we're talking Wheaton College, probably, you know, no masks. If all these things can happen, we're hoping. We don't know. We can't promise. We're planning. But the cultural convulsion in the past has taken four, five, six years. So I believe that this tumult and turbulence remains with us. So that's why I think people are still engaging Christians in the age of outrage in a way. You know, three years after it was published, people say this is still remarkably appropriate today because Christians aren't just had the outrage directed at them. That's how I start the book is outrage directed at Christians because I, I knew Christians would say, what about us? And I said, i show you. Here it is. <laughs> but, but I think Christians have become part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see this today. Christians disproportionately fooled by conspiracy theories, uh, Christians disproportionately angered online, uh, Christians disproportionately, well, I could give a hundred things, but as an evangelical who really loves God's people and loves the church, I think it's my responsibility, and I'd say your responsibility is, you know, as a person yeah. of significant platform, it's our responsibility to help Christians engage their culture well. And I don't think we are. We need to do better.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today.
1: Something you say online is this. You say, it's an unfortunate reality that most of our churches are growing through transfer rather than conversion. If we aren't prioritizing sharing the good news on a regular basis, others are less likely to view it as important. What does it look like to refocus as a people of God, as the church about the gospel, what does it look like to refocus on what it means to share the gospel?
2: Yeah. So I think that's a key thing because, you know, touching briefly on the conspiracy theory theme, one of the things I said on on the socials was that I'm just stunned by the fact that I see people sharing Christians, conspiracy, 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 and then, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, conspiracy. Well, in the midst of all that noise, listen, I I want to hear, people don't want to don't want to join a movement. Let's, can, can, from their perspective, you know, we would say, "Be born again, changed by the power of the gospel." People, people don't want to join a movement that they see populated by easily misled people. Right. So, I think again, the discipleship of the mind really happens here. So that's part of it. Um, Also, too, uh, there's an article people can Google. By the time this comes out, it'll be online. It's something I call the great sort. The great sort is going on in our churches, and what's happening? We've got some data from this national COVID church tracking project is a stunning number of people are changing churches right now mm. because their church did or did not say his name, George Floyd, because uh. they did or did not require masks, because they did or did not pray for President-elect Biden the Sunday after the election when people were still contesting. So so we're seeing like stunning numbers in this mm. great sort. And so a lot of pastors tell me, well, we're just seeing all kinds of new people come. Yeah, they're leaving the other church because they were mad about their mask mandates. You don't... You don't want to engage in the kind of resorting of Christians or leaving for those reasons. Um, so my hope is, to specifically to your question, is that instead, because I think this fall could be a season of great harvest. Um, I, I hope fact, so. I think so. So we're actually planning our Amplify Outreach Conference around that theme. We believe that, um, you know, I, I planted several churches. And on launch day, you know, October 1 is a launch day for one of my churches we planted. It rained. And it killed us because most unchurched people are just one minor excuse away from showing up for a big day at church. And can I just tell you, the pandemic has been the excuse everybody needed who's not a Christian to say, you know, I'm not going to go visit the church right now. Mm. But I think by fall, continuing to if current trends continue, people are probably listening to this around the world too, but I'm talking about in the US, hopefully Canada will catch up, they're struggling. But I think that as that excuse kind of goes away and people realize that they don't have the... The, the framework to deal with what has been a really difficult year, mental health challenges, physical and sickness and death, right. you know, uh, political division. I mean, all these sorts of things. I think that we're going to see a great uh, response. Um, let me give one quick story because yeah, you, you like stories. You wrote your dissertation I love stories. on stories. So in 1968, long before most people listening were born, um, and, you know, but you can look it up in history books. So 1968, was more divided time than we are in right now in 2021 Mm. um vietnam war protests civil rights protests right so uh and churches were dividing over this right so you see the letters that they'd send to wheaton college from when we had a service uh that year 1968 martin luther king jr was assassinated april 4th we had a service at wheaton college uh, a couple weeks after and the vitriol letters people universal universally martin luther king today, almost universally, is praised by people. Right. Then he was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, approval ratings in the 20s. So the letters, the vitriol to his dividing churches, um, Vietnam War, people said we were about to go into civil war. In Chicago, um, the mayor said to the police, just go break everyone's heads open. Break their heads open. And they did. They they called it a police riot in a later uh, government report. Um, so all this, Bobby Kennedy assassinated that year. What people forget is it was a great global pandemic that year. Mm. It it wasn't controversial to call it this at that time, but it was called the Hong Kong flu. It spread all around the world. And ironically, they didn't have shutdowns like we did. They had Woodstock. But anyway, that's another story (laughs) about how to deal with pandemics. Um, But but so all this took place and churches were just unsure. I mean, this was a turbulent time for churches. Remember, I said earlier, David Brooks, every 60-year cultural convulsion, right? Mm. But it was that time when Chuck Smith turned to his daughter and said, tell me about these hippies. How about bringing me home a hippie to meet? And Chuck Smith was at the time pastoring a four square church that would later be called Calvary Chapel. Mm -hmm. And he brought home, his daughter brought home Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie Frisbee uh, was a new believer, uh, trying to figure things out. And they started a Bible study together on Saturday nights and and soon the coffee houses up and down the West Coast and, and, and communes and more. And by some people's count, 20 to 30 million people come to Jesus in what's called the Jesus People Movement. And what I wanna say to people is, is that that was in the middle of a cultural convulsion. And so my question is, is 2020, 2021 going to be the time when Christians go down the outrage rabbit hole and destroy their witness and burn bridges with people who need the gospel, as happened in 1968 with a lot of Christians. You can just read the, you can read the response to many evangelicals. People in my denomination were on the wrong side, many on the wrong side of the hoses in Birmingham, Alabama. So the question then becomes, will we be those who say, how do we show and share the love of Jesus in a broken and divided Mm -hmm. time? That I think could lead to a great gospel harvest this fall and beyond.
1: Speaking of stories, a question that I love asking people, I just think it's helpful if we have younger viewers listening When they see people that they perceive to be successful, I love asking this question Did you always know? that you were going to be author, speaker, academic, Ed Stetzer, or has your success surprised you? Okay,
2: so let's change the success part because I think I didn't think necessarily I'd be successful. Okay. Uh, I grew up in a home uh, raised mostly by a single mom. Um, I remember standing in the grocery store line when she took out the food stamps and seeing the disappointment from the cashier and the shame that I felt. Mm. My mother pressed through. She's the most amazing woman. Um, we struggled. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, so then- Went to college, graduated high school with a 1.7 GPA. Your pin tweet always relates to me because mm. I like I I was an academic failure, struggled, uh, but did well testing wise. Ended up getting a scholarship to college on tests. So went to the inner city of Buffalo, New York. Went seeking success. I, I, I descended into intentional poverty. We lived uh, among the urban poor. We were the urban poor. I worked as a contractor blowing insulation, rehabbing houses, section eight houses in a government program. And I said, this is what, I was very influenced by Tony Campolo, uh, the Evangelical Association for Promotion of Education. Um, This was, this was 19, late 80s, early 90s. So, uh, but when I was, that was 21. We moved to Buffalo when I was 21, going 88, Don and I. And um, so I began to read, though. And so I began to do an MDiv. I did an MDiv driving from Buffalo to Pittsburgh every weekend for four years sleeping on in a sleeping bag on the floor of an office building because they offered classes in Pittsburgh to get my MDiv. So four years drove back and forth every weekend in the snow uphill both ways. I know it sounds like (laughs) that. Um, But, uh, and then I started taking courses. I read a book by a guy named Elmer Towns. And some of your listeners know that name. He's written 170 books. He has no unpublished thought. So I said, I want to be like Elmer Towns. So I started studying with Elmer Towns, did my first MDiv, did a master's degree then under Elmer Towns, a second master's degree. And when I was 28, I said to a guy named Larry, who you'll never know or meet, we were at a camp uh, for pa- a retreat. I was pastoring in Erie, Pennsylvania, a church we planted. And he reminded me recently, sent me an email, said, when you were 28, you told me that you were going to eventually be kind of like an Elbert Towns figure. You were going to lead a center. What I said was like Fuller. So Fuller in the late oh, wow. 80s, early 90s is, is different than Fuller today. But it was a center of what was called the church growth movement. I'm not a church growth movement person. I'm a missiologist intentionally. But, so when I was 28, I told him, so at that point, I began to prepare. So I did a D-Min, because I couldn't do a PhD, and then I did a PhD, and then I began to write books. So probably from 28 forward, my intent was not necessarily successful, but I wanted to share information that, I, there's a, a term in, uh, I forget the book, but being, I think it's uh, it's being a maven. So
1: Oh, yeah, tipping point. Uh,
2: tipping point. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I said, I want to be a maven. I want to help churches and leaders by learning what other churches and leaders are doing and sharing it, which is what I saw Fuller doing in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, You know, there's, you know, so many leaders were impacted by that time. Um, And so I tell when I was 28 years old, I told him I wanted to do that. And so that would be 1998. And so then I began to write and speak and kind of go on that path. And so, and I will tell you, that was path, that was easy. I, I ended up, Teaching at a seminary for th- it didn't work well. I was there for three very long, difficult years. Mm. Um, so that path had a lot of challenges, um, you know, and, and journeys and diversions. But but to where I am now is something I was, according to Larry, I was planning on doing this since I was twenty eight.
1: What would you say to somebody? I know so many people right now are experiencing just their own deepest battle with depression or anxiety. What would you say to somebody right now who is still in their pit and just can't see out of it? What hope could you give them?
2: Yeah. So one of the things that, um, that I found beginning of the pandemic, I, um, you know, we pivoted. So I, I early on, I came back from a trip, uh, out of the continental U S in January, started reading about what was then called the, the Wuhan virus. And I said to Donna, um, when they talked about um, asymptomatic spread, so my my da- 2009, my daughter was one of the early people to get swine flu. Oh, okay. And back then, early on, they thought this was going to be a big right. deal, like 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 COVID has turned out to be. So I did a lot of research then. So we, and actually, my daughter came home, made their church camp made the national news. They shut down our county, the churches. The um, I mean, so what we saw in COVID happened in my little community mm. in tw- 2009. So. But it wasn't asymptomatic spread. And so when we started seeing things about asymptomatic spread, I said to my team, they're going to shut everything down. This is going to be the biggest crisis of our lifetime. So we began to pivot early. So one of the reasons people ask us, how did you have – like we launched coronavirus in the church with Saddleback and Rick Warren and Peace Plan very early on. It became kind of a one-stop shop. I did a Facebook Live early on. Uh, about 200,000 people watched it. And I said, this is not the crisis, not this momentary shutdown. This is going to be a big deal. For a long time, um, someone pointed out that we actually said we had a chart that said May 2021 is in our little chart where they kind of about it. So I, we we didn't we were just that was just a chart. So so early on, we kind of felt this was going to be a very big deal. So we leaned in, leaned in with our team, and everyone was working 14 hour days. Our whole team, the Wheaton College of Billy Graham Center, amazing team I have. And I was not paying attention to my own family. So matter of fact, when they shut down, President Trump shut down for two weeks, and then they went to four weeks. I said to my mm-hmm. wife, she's an introvert. I said to her, so four more weeks of shutdown. I said, so as an introvert, is that like a good thing for you? <laughs> and she says, are you going to be here the whole time? Are you going to be like right in the house? Because I'm a big extrovert. <laughs> um, but my, you know, I wouldn't pay attention to my daughters whose high school graduation mm. ceremonies were all canceled, all the activities. My, my oldest daughter, who's all our students, college students left. Um, and then I was trying to pay more attention. And then a dear friend of mine, who some of your listeners know, but his name's Darren Patrick, he uh, died by a self inflicted gunshot wound. Mm. And um, so at that point, that was the day I sort of broke down, wept all day, realized that I have not been paying attention to my own. Because from early on, I began to experience something I never experienced before. I've been very much engaged in mental health uh, leader conversation as a pastor. I work a lot with mental health organizations because I think pastors don't seek that out. The first time I began to experience low-level ongoing anxiety,
0: mm.
2: and I've talked about this in a few places because I think it's important we talk about it. Yes, um, and so probably for six to nine months, I experienced what I've never experienced before, which is this low-level anxiety. Talked to my doctor about it. Um, didn't have to do anything though. I'm very very pro medicine. Didn't take any medical intervention, but had to change some things. What I would say is I believe that that. Um, This pandemic has multiple impacts, right? But one of them will be mental health. This is a mental health crisis that's still unraveling. Mm -hmm. That will be decades long in its impact. It's um, uh, because now pastors and leaders is most of my audience. They're getting used to now. They're walking through conflict every day. This conflict's not going away. They're like twenty five percent of the church was mad at them when they wore masks. 25% 25% of church was horrified that he even met with masks mm-hmm. and vocal and anger and all sorts of stuff. And so I was seeing some of that, you know, social media became more and more vitriolic. So I kind of experienced that. So what I would say is if first, if, if you're walking through that, um, get help. Intend. You know, I talked to my doctor, you could as well. And listen to her or him uh, because there are, you might need to get intentional help, We we are very, I, I'm assuming together, we, I'll say us together, if you're listening, we we encourage you to seek out mental health yes. professionals as needed. There's no shame in that. We need to move the stigma. Even why I'm talking about here, talking about this reduces the stigma. Sermons break stigmas. Talk about it in your church. Um, I would say, too, that one of the things we're going to need, because I don't think this is a one-year thing, as I said earlier, we're going to need reservoirs of resilience that we haven't had before and those are going to be relational reservoirs of resilience those are going to be spiritual disciplines that give us reservoirs of resilience so we're going if 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 i'm right and i'm really just echoing some david brooks comments and what i see in the culture and this is a three or four year more cultural convulsion to go mm. we're going to need those reservoirs of resilience to make it through so you know play even like this podcast these are these are tools that help you to slow down listen think things through and we can't just there was an early rally stage in March, April. We're going to make it through this. One of the things yeah. that you can go to the CDC website and find this, but what happens in long crises is mm. uh, there's called the rallying period and it's followed by a deep disillusionment and people experience that deep disillusionment. I don't think some people are out of it. And I still think we're going to walk through this for a while. Reservoirs of resilience, better relationship, spiritual formation practices, mental health help when you need it.
1: What do you love most about the church? And can you give us some hope? Give us an Ed Stetzer inspirational thought here as to how we can keep moving forward toward Christ.
2: Yeah, so i read the end of the book, Jesus Wins, so I'm always yes. going to be eternally optimistic. Um, so, you know, during the season, you know, I, I ended—I was the interim pastor of a church in Chicago called the Moody Church. It's kind of an old, historic, well-known church that D.L. Moody founded. Um, and I ended— the, my interim there in an empty room with almost 4,000 seats in downtown Chicago. It's like a big cathedral down. Mm-hmm. The largest non-columned amphitheater in Chicago. Beautiful building. And it was jarring. It was stunning. Um, Easter Sunday, 2020, standing in that room. And we're not a, you know, East, Moody Church is a radio church. You know, Erwin Lutzer historically been on the radio. I mean, all the pastors of Moody Church have been on the radio. So we didn't have any, like, our live streaming was a ca- camera. wouldn't even have HD way in the back. Because we're a radio church. All of a sudden, everything changed. And um, what I loved was to see Moody Church and churches all over. Um, I, wrote, I wrote USA Today early on in the pandemic. I said, um, I said the masks are about to come down. Now, this is before mask wearing became controversial and whatever. I said, we're going to find out who evangelicals really are. And I said, I believe that we're going to step up, stand out, and stand in the gap. Mm. And I think that is what happened. I think that um, my church is High Point Church. That's my home church. Um, our coffee bar is has been for the last year a staging area for our food pantry. Uh, Wheaton, Illinois is a disproportionately uh, refugee resettlement community. Uh, and we, our church has stepped up and stepped out. Or right here where we're recording at Cherry Hills, um, when we all preach the Sunday services, and then afterwards and on Monday, they'll actually fill the whole entryway with food products, food mm. uh, staples, and ministering, because need has gone up, and so to me the hope I see is as we come out of this pandemic. Is people say to me, you know, do you think the church will be forever changed? I actually hope it will be, mm. but I hope the way it will be is that we see a higher level of involvement, engagement of God's people on God's mission. John twenty twenty one, Jesus says, "As the Father has sent me, even so send I you." Mm-hmm. A lot of followers of Jesus have stepped up, stood out, and stood in the gap. They've engaged at a higher level. Not all. But if that can become more the norm, Mm -hmm. now the problem is, you know, this is not the first pandemic the church has been through. And the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So the most likely thing is that three years from now, we're going to look like we looked two years ago, which had some good to it, right? Then we can meet again. We can do those things. But it was a lot of consumer-driven and customer-focused Christianity. Yeah. So I think that God shook the church Mm -hmm. with, I mean, can you imagine? You know, for 20 years, some of us have been writing these angsty books and podcasts and articles about the church got to leave the building and get on mission. <laughs> and then in about two weeks, right. the church left the building and got on mission. So the question for me and the hope I have is let's keep that greater mm. level of mission to show and share the love of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting world.
1: Thanks, Ed, for joining us for this episode. We like to end each episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I scour the Viral Jesus hashtags on all of our social channels and talk to someone who maybe you haven't heard of yet, but you should certainly be following as they grow viral. Today, we talk to Quantrilla Ard. Dr. Ard is an energetic public health professional and behavioral scientist who enjoys working with people and is host of the PhDmama.com. Well, Quantrilla, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So you have a PhD in health psychology. Can you tell me what drew you to that field? And and also, what is it? What is health psychology?
3: So basically, health psychology is literally exactly what it says. It is the study of health behavior. It is the study of why people do what they do in terms of their health.
1: Let me ask you, in terms of health psychology, what do you feel like is an angle or a conversation that's not being had that you as a spokesperson and researcher of this field know that maybe the world should be having? What's a conversation that we need to be having as it relates to health psychology?
3: Well, there's several, uh, but I'll just tell you what I'm working on. I'm looking at how racism really impacts the lives of Black mamas and their babies. And this is from a psychological standpoint. This is from a public health standpoint. Um, and, and the conversations, are they're actually starting to be had now but I'm specifically looking at the grief and loss that is encapsulated in that experience and how I can help alleviate that for Black mamas and their families and their babies.
1: How can people find you? Where can they find you online?
3: Oh, my goodness. Oh, goodness. I'm everywhere. So <laughs> I love social media. I am on Instagram as the PhD Mama with two Ms. I am on Twitter with all the things as qyrd08. And I am on Facebook also as the PhD Mama.
1: Well, it has been a pleasure getting to know you. I love following you. If you're not following Quantrilla, you had better do it right now. Thank you so much for joining us. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson-Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next week, I get to share with you the rest of the conversation I had with my friend, Esau McCauley, as he talks mentorship and faith, and his book, Read. Reading while black. I'll see you next week.
0: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips.